welcome to episode 11 of What's on the Pile. Joining me is Shane Lee. It's me. Jane Belcastro. Hi. And and Jenner. <laughs> hoping that uh, uh, hoping that my research doesn't let me down as much this week as it did last week. <laughs> <laughs> it, it happens to all of us. <laughs> uh, this week we'll be discussing David Lynch's Disney-produced G-rated film, The Straight Story. The true story of Alvin Strait, played by Richard Farnsworth, and his six-week journey on a sitting lawnmower to see his brother, who has suffered from a stroke. This was on my pile, definitely. Uh, I've always wanted to see it, and I'm actually really glad I did now. Uh, who else had this on their pile? This was on my pile. Uh, I know it was on Jane's. Shane? Yep, it was on my pile, too. Had, uh, had you actually actively wanted to see this, Jane? Oh, well, actually, I didn't even know about it until you mentioned it. But if it's David Lynch, I'm usually there with a few actually major holes in, <laughs> in my uh, in my catalog there. But that's all right. We're going to get to those next. So Now, uh, a G-rated David Lynch film is, is what threw me and probably most people uh, when first encountering this thing. Um, but you can tell this film is very Lynchian. Very Lynchian in its uh, in the way it's shot, the way the music is done. Very. Uh, it's it's interesting how his style comes through. Well, with the Battle of Menti score kind of announced itself fairly directly right at the beginning. It's uh, to the point where uh, I think both Jane and I were, were were inwardly thinking, "This is Battle of Menti." Uh, before yep. the, the credit <laughs> yeah. the credit came up, and we both simultaneously said, "Yep." Yep. It even and... feels like he borrows from the Twin Peaks theme a little bit in that intro. It did. Yeah. Well, it's the same composer, so uh, he yeah. he has a very distinctive sound, and uh, he's interesting that, that he's one of these absolutely weapons-grade characters who has sort of ended up as part of Lynch's uh, stock company of technicians and uh, uh, creatives on the uh, uh, on the behind-the-camera side of things. Uh, like uh, uh, the other one I can really think of is uh, is Alan Splett or Splay. I, I have no idea how it's actually pronounced, but he's been a sound designer on lots and lots of pictures, and he's one. One of the absolute best in the business, uh, but he doesn't work for anybody but David Lynch. <laughs> yeah, another name I noticed in the credits was Jack Fisk, who I believe worked with him on Eraserhead, and then Mary Sweeney, who he was also previously uh, married to, or David Lynch was previously married to. I, I mistakenly um, said to Nate that I think I thought he was a hired gun on this movie, but it turns out he was not. Um, I actually, have you guys read Room to Dream, David Lynch's sort of autobiography? I have, I have not. not gotten. So I, I have not. I say sort of because it's it's kind of a cool structure where there's a biographer, uh, Christina McKenna. She writes each chapter is uh, split into two parts. The first part's written by the biographer. The second part is Lynch reads that part and then responds to it. So, which is really cool. So, I I went back and reread the chapter on the straight story, which, not that surprisingly, is a very short chapter in this book. It's sort of it's sort of just shoved in there between uh, chapters about Lost Highway and then the multiple chapters about Mulholland Drive. So I'll I'll throw in a couple of tidbits from the book here and there as we go along. Yeah, I I imagine that it was a relative well a relatively straightforward production, not least because they were following the uh, original route that the real uh, Alvin Strait had followed, uh, as I understand it, and they shot the whole thing uh, uh, linearly. Uh, yeah. Which, which, when you think about it, is kind of of a piece of the slight uh, but uh, distinct uh, infamy of the DVD release uh, that this had back in the day. It uh, it gained some notoriety because it was all one chapter stop. <laughs> which <laughs> I read about that. Which feels which feels a little pretentious, even if I kind of sort of understand why he did it. <laughs> um, well, no, cool. well, watch this whole film. film. Too. I, I'm actually oh. it was filmed linearly, but they keep going back to Sissy SpaceX Sissy SpaceX scenes in her house when like with during the phone call did she come back like six weeks later well I, no, <laughs> I, I, I imagine it was just the major sequences with Farnsworth okay. uh, yeah who was, uh, I, just, who was actually I know it sounded a little from... ridiculous to ask but <laughs> uh, Farnsworth, I did. I think as much as anything else, they didn't want to overtax Richard Farnsworth. Uh, as I understand it, he was actually uh, suffering terminal cancer uh, at this yep. uh, at this point, and uh, I guess self euthanized uh, the following year, mm-hmm. which yeah. is sort of sad in its own right. Uh, but I mean, at the at the same time, you know, what a performance to go out on. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, let's. I didn't mean. I didn't mean to bring everybody down there for a moment. Uh, let, yeah. What do you? How do you segue from there? Let, 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 let's start talking about this. Uh, about this very beautiful and moving and uplifting picture that we're all better for having watched. <laughs> <laughs> this movie was so wholesome. So, so wholesome. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. Well, <laughs> David Lynch actually says something about that in his book. He talks about how you know everyone in this book is so saintly but that that's not really the, the full story about them. So I think in Lynch's head, which makes it canon, <laughs> all the people in this movie are like huffing gas and, and beating up women. Or there's, you know, that's that small town in Iowa he stops in, there's like a mysterious dead girl in there somewhere, I think. <laughs> so I, I think he has this, his head canon about what's actually going on. And a tiny little furry-faced lady dancing in a radiator somewhere in one of the houses. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I love Eraserheads. So. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, when we think about uh, about Lynch's uh, particularly American set films, uh, the uh, they, they are they do constitute sort of a distinct substrain of Americana in their own right. Uh, stuff like uh, Blue Velvet, uh, Twin Peaks, of course, uh, but even uh, some of the more uh, esoteric uh, uh, pictures uh, like uh, like Lost Highway, uh, all have this distinct sort of you know, small town America qual- uh, quality to them. Uh, even extends over into Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire. If you can get your mind around the idea of viewing Los Angeles and Hollywood as though they were small towns, um, but it, it, the thing about most of those pictures is the the wholesome parts were were kind of sidelights. I mean, they particularly stood out in Twin Peaks. They were everybody's favorite part of Twin Peaks, frankly. Uh, or at least almost everybody's. Uh, uh, I mean, there will be different, uh, differing on that point, but they, uh, they were definitely a distinct uh, and uh, aspect of that story. But it's, this is the only Lynch film that is composed entirely of that stuff without ever tipping the hat in the direction of you know, the, the unseemly goings-on under the surface of small-town life. It treats its characters uh, so gently as well, uh, just with, with a lot of care and love. I actually noticed that um, it, they never really talked about what the two brothers argued about, which I think made it even more wholesome. I mean, we can guess. Well, I mean, when we you, can guess when you think about it, those, those when you think about it, those two guys were the closest thing the movie had to a villain. <laughs> 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 the, the, the fight was the villain, yeah, and the, it was yeah, mentioned is, but never seen. Uh, for for reference for those listening, this is uh, the uh, the two twin auto mechanics who uh, initially come in with a quote oh. of what was it two hundred and seventy five dollars, and they end up getting knocked down to one hundred and eighty. That's the extent. Yes. That's the extent of the conflict in the picture, uh, a- except uh, for the the one relatively early bit between uh, between Straight and his uh, first attempt uh, riding lawnmower, which is what I think Jane was talking about. Yeah. Uh, or she was talking about the f- the fight between him and his brother. Yes. Yes, ah. you you never actually. Now, what the uh, the other brothers, the two twins, were ta- fighting brothers. about? Who knows? You can tell that they were just pugilistic the whole way. They shooting daggers at each other. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were pretty much the only people who were sort of dicks the entire movie, and they, they got were, taken he, down oh, really fast. Yeah, Alvin and, and, just uh, took them down. You're right, exactly. They basically got taken down by like Alvin's wholesomeness, or Alvin's wholesomeness. <laughs> I think I said Alvin. <laughs> This um, is like the maybe the most maybe the darkest G-rated movie I've ever seen though. I mean, <laughs> I mean well, so it was filmed at a different time, but there's drinking, there's smoking, there's a gun fired at one point. I mean, not at a person, but he fires a gun at his lawnmower and there's some pretty intense war stories being swapped. So it's still rated G. I, I don't think it would be rated G nowadays. Well, just no, for not the, with just, the smoking. Yeah, just for the smoking it would get a PG-13. Uh, that that was yeah. a development that came a few years later though. Uh, going back quickly to the twins, the Olsen twins, um, <laughs> they were uh, they were played by the Farley brothers, and uh, I did read that Chris Farley was supposed to be in this film, uh, ostensibly as one of the brothers. I wonder if they're related to him, if they're his his brothers. No, I think they are. I think I looked that up. Okay, they are. They are okay, they, they are, are his brothers. brothers. I mean, one of them looked just like him. The other one looked a little bit different, but I think they're yeah, they're all they're all brothers. You say Olsen twins, and I'm like Mary Kate and Ashley. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said when yeah when that Paul, and Paul you got them. 
and as a student of Americana, you got to figure that was deliberate on uh, on uh, the part of Lynch or one of his collaborators. That's just a, a little throwaway, you know, gag in there. <laughs> but my point is, this because... is this is a movie where the closest thing that we have uh, to a villain. Uh, or a nemesis, or uh, you know anybody who isn't just kind of a completely wonderful person, is going to be a couple of auto mechanics, or, or in this case, tractor mechanics. I, I mean, I, I'm entirely They're on. evil wizards. I'm entirely on board with that. I, as I said, as I've said, I, I have a long-standing uh, uh, take that uh, that auto mechanics are literally an order of evil wizards. But uh, uh, <laughs> that's probably a rant for another time. Well, there was also the uh, the the. Who I call the dear freakout lady. I don't know what was up with that. I mean, that was, that was kind of a funny scene. Uh, I like it. Actually. I love that scene. She, she said 17 deer in seven weeks or something. <laughs> just, just trying to drive back and forth to work. And then she just drives off and, and, and leaves gets, him with a meal. Gets, yeah, he gets a meal and some antlers for his trailer. Very jaunty <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I, I loved I loved dear lady. I loved her so much. Oh, yeah. Um and I found it incredibly tense when uh, the deer actually gets hit, and you don't see a car crash. You don't see the deer getting hit. You just see four snap zooms in on Farnsworth's face as he yeah. reacts. And that was a tense moment to me because I constantly felt like he was in danger because he's so frail and old, and I just wanted him to not be hurt. And here's another thing about the deer. That thing was super realistic. I feel like they found a fresh roadkill and dragged it over because it didn't look like a fake deer to me. I mean, I don't know if you watch movies. That, I mean, obviously, it, it did look real. if I you mean, watch it, if you, if you look very carefully at some of the dead animals, quote unquote, uh, in uh, movies, they look fake. They look like you can see their fake fur. You can tell it's not real. I was convinced that thing looked real. <laughs> So. What? Well, yeah, I, mean, I I agree with that. I mean, of course, they did have the qualification in the credits that no animals were uh, were uh, harmed or injured in the making of this film. But of course, it didn't have like the American Humane logo, so who knows? Uh, but uh, no, I, I it did look real. I'm I'm going to allow for the possibility that it, uh, I I would freely allow that they just happened on some hunters on the road who had just uh, who had just bagged a good one and thought, do you mind if we borrow that for about a half an hour? That's that. I thought of that too. <laughs> it is at the same time one of the most Lynchian uh, episodes in the film, just from being a complete one-off with no context prior to it or or after it, uh, and and just being sort of completely surreal. It's uh, it, it's the kind of ha- uh, kind of things that happen if you spend long enough going in the same direction. Sooner or later, you're going to see everything that you could possibly see going in that direction. <laughs> I, I, I love that scene. Uh, one thing I, I really liked uh, about uh, Lynch's use of, of his visual style is uh, the shot of the ball rolling into frame that Sissy Spacek was watch- watching when the little boy comes into frame. And there's just that that uh, sad uh, uh, grass watering thing, <laughs> sprinkler, that's barely going off. And it's very similar to a shot in uh, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. But... It's not creepy. It's it's kind. It's very dreamlike. It's very ethereal, and uh, and uh, it really adds multiple layers to Sissy Spacek's character Rose. Um, once you learn her backstory, her sad sad backstory. Yeah. Once you get the backstory there, uh, her entire performance is just achingly poignant. I mean, I mean, it's a beautiful piece of acting in that it is sort of it, it's the sort of thing that uh, it, uh, the sort of role that invites over-mannered performance uh, from a lot of actors but she just kind of modulates it beautifully to the point where it, it never tips into caricature or or broadness and, and it, it's really just an, an incredibly endearing role in his, uh, in its own right uh, as uh, as uh, uh, Alvin's uh, daughter and uh, and uh, housemate and uh, uh, ultimately, biggest cheerleader, I think. Yeah, I mean, apparently she had to wear a prosthetic to get the speech right, and yeah, I mean, she's such a warm, quirky presence in that, and I guess she's supposed to be, I guess, mildly autistic or or something like that. Like uh, Alvin mentions that people say that she's slow, which she says she's not, but she does have this weird mannerism that I think is associated with autism. I'm not really sure. 
Uh, I did absolutely love uh, her line delivery right uh, at the beginning of the film as uh, she comes into the house and uh, you know, the uh, and uh, um, Alvin's uh, buddy and uh, the neighbor woman are looking over Alvin lying on the floor and her first response is, "What did you do to my dad?" <laughs> uh, I love that. No, I mean it's just a beautiful line reading as much as anything else. But at the same time, it's it, it's an indication of. I guess how much characters trust each other in the milieu that this takes place in, uh, that she instantly shifts over to, oh, okay, he suffered an episode. Uh, you know, it's but uh, it's a, the, the, there's the the, uh, the shock line delivered for kind of comic timing, and then they get kind of into the meat of the situation. Yeah, and then the neighbor lady says, you know, what's the number for nine one one? Which is a joke I've heard a million times. I wonder if that was the first, or if that's just Lynch. Being like, oh, look, look at these, you know, look at these folksy people in, 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 in their simple ways. I, I don't know. But yeah, that, that, that line did stand out to me. Like, what's the number for 911? That, that, that stood out to me, too. That, that felt like it might be just a tiny bit broad. At the same time, I've actually seen that happen before. So, I mean, it, it's, it, it's a thing that can happen. Oh, and, and the, uh, the doctor, when he goes to the doctor, the doctor says diabetes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. Uh, one of, I think, probably to me, a, a scarier moment in the uh, in the film was the lawnmower in the speed zone, uh, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. which uh, which was shot magnificently. They, I mean, as far as I can tell, they actually had that thing mounted to a lawnmower and was they were letting it go uh, down a hill. It, it really felt like that. It was it was wonderfully shot and very very tense oh yeah no that 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 moment i was seriously terrified as i say i think the theme we're probably going to keep coming back to in this is the way that the movie makes us genuinely concerned for everybody in it but most particularly for uh uh, for for alvin Strait. um but it is also worth uh, noting since you mentioned uh, the the way that the film is shot in general is uh this of course was done by the uh uh, by one of the all-time greats uh freddie francis uh, who was uh, uh, probably best known as uh, the cinematographer for Lawrence of Arabia and Lynch's own Dune uh, uh, 15 years prior to this. And, uh, and of course, also had uh, his uh, major sidelight uh, back in uh, the uh, 60s and uh, I think some of the 70s as uh, the uh, one of the, uh, or basically Hammer Films' second man, uh, the, uh, the fellow who directed Evil of Frankenstein and... Uh, Dracula has risen from the grave and uh, did a number of the uh, Amicus uh, Portmanteau anthology films from the 1970s. So in in any event, kind of the culmination of a long and extraordinary career uh, in its own right, but uh, notable that uh, that they brought uh, or that uh, he came back to work with Lynch again. But the, yeah, the the cinematography in this is, is is just beautiful, and it never really calls attention to itself. Uh, it just it just looks right from frame to frame, and uh, particularly some of the vistas are. Uh, I know this is a word that we find ourselves using a lot. Absolutely painterly. Yeah, going back to the very beginning, I don't know if you guys felt like this, but obviously the the opening the opening few scenes were very you know Twin Peaks scenes because we're in this sort of because it's Lynch and we're in this kind of small town. Um, I feel like once they leave the town, he kind of settles into a more conventional style. Did, did you guys feel that way at all? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, I, I can see that. Because it did feel very Twin Peaksy when when it started uh, in, in, that, in that special way. And there's a scene uh, very early on, right before uh, Straight and his daughter are lying out under the stars, there's a really quick shot of the grain silos. Yes. And it's dark, and there's this absolutely terrifying Humming. noise. Yes, and I was like, "That's so Lynch." It's just so Lynch. Yeah, it sounds. It felt like something out of Twin Peaks mm-hmm. season. And three. they they hovered on and it I, for a good 10, 15 seconds. Yeah, it was. And I was like, "What is this? It looks like a monolith." It's. it's I I was thinking and... nuclear reactor. Of, yeah. so. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah. how dark! <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's it, not that it's, kind of movie. No, it's that. I mean, that's the, that's the thing is, it's the Lynch movie where it has lots of uh, aspects that are very familiar from other Lynch movies, but it's the one where you keep coming back to. It's not that kind of movie. <laughs> uh, in the realm of David Lynch movies, this is the G-rated one. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, I still felt worried. Oh yeah, kids because can worry. Because you care so much. no if anything that aspect uh, i think almost harkens back to sort of the g-rated entertainment that was 
uh, not necessarily ubiquitous, but definitely kind of in its full flower uh, right around the time that I was a kid. Uh, it, it's just interesting that you got this one, you know, that close to the turn uh, of the millennium. But uh, there were, there were, particularly before the invention of the PG-13 rating, there were a lot of really, really badass G-rated movies. Uh, uh, or examples, and, and also one with with well, I mean it doesn't it doesn't necessarily uh, mean anything because I mean going back to the '60s, the, some interesting things got G-rated before they had figured out even the PG rating. Like uh, the aforementioned Dracula has risen from the grave, believe it or not, was G-rated. Although if they were going to re-rate it at this point, it would probably be a PG-13. But uh, at the same time, uh, in 1979, Star Trek: The Motion Picture got a G rating, and lots of horrible stuff happens to people in that movie uh true you know, that that transporter accident alone uh, these days would get probably get it a pg-13 rating but uh this had that same aspect of just because it's g-rated doesn't mean it's toothless it's g-rated because there's nothing objectionable in it because making people worried is not actually objectionable it it it's what drives the story forward <laughs> Well, apparently smoking would probably have changed it, though. I, I, I know we touched on that before, but it was kind of amazing uh, how much everybody smoked, like a lot. It was, it was Alvin had the Swisher Sweets. Yeah, <laughs> Al, Alvin had the Swisher Sweets in his pocket, and everybody was smoking. Which, were, yeah. which was visible at all times. It almost seemed like an advertisement. Or a product it did. Placement product or placement in a G-rated... Hey, maybe. <laughs> if, if not a totem. <laughs> between between that between that and his uncooked wieners, uh, <laughs> I love the way he says wiener. Yeah, you got anything to eat? Yeah, young girl comes up. You got anything to eat? Wieners. <laughs> <laughs> eat your dinner, Missy. <laughs> That's my favorite line. I I want to use that whenever somebody is like you know talking about things I don't want to talk about. Eat your dinner, Missy. I don't care who it is. I'll say it to my dad. <laughs> yeah, so he's just he's just trucking down the road with just a box full of wieners and Braunschweiger apparently. Oh, nasty! Which I've never had before. Oh, it's not. No, it's not good. Yeah, you. Said I mean, that. I lived in Wisconsin, and that's sort of a thing, isn't it? I think it's like, or I'm thinking liverwurst, but Braunschweiger isn't isn't good. My grandmother liked it, but again, she lived in Wisconsin for many years, so. I'll have to look that up, what that is. <laughs> I, I, I think you might be right, though. I think it's something along the lines of a liver baloney. So that's kind of a dodgy prospect, you know, just right out of the gate there. Mm-mm. Let's see. But, but, that, but that Wisconsin, meanwhile, I hear that's a real party state. <laughs> Cheeseheads. <laughs> Twice. Twice we hear it. <laughs> I liked it. That was a really good repeat yeah, line. I thought so. Yeah, that was that girl, the pregnant girl. She wasn't the girl at the grocery store, was she? Because of that line, no, I thought no. maybe it was the same person. I just they both kind of look similar, so I wasn't sure. I I took it as it's a small town and they probably know each other and right. have said that like the same thing just goes around. Yeah, it's just like one of those things that goes around town. Well, if if you're in Iowa, Wisconsin very probably is a real party state. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I really loved about this film was the uh, the quiet moments. There were a lot of no dialogue, quiet moments for uh, for the actors to kind of live and breathe in, and uh, and Lynch gave them a lot of space to to be able to to be in that world uh, and and just kind of reflect on on what's going on. I really liked that. It, it kept happening throughout the movie. Now, one yeah, of my I... favorite scenes was when he pulled into the um, into that barn for the storm. Oh, really? yes. I, I don't know what it was about that. He just it was nothing. It was nothing to it. But it was just like this, you know, power of nature all around him. And he just found the right place at the right time. Or I don't know. It was yeah, a it... sense of relief as well for me. And because it was Lynch, I didn't trust that empty house on the side of the road. Oh, no. But of, co of course, it was just, you know, it, it turned out to be just totally fine. It, it was just shelter. But, uh, I mean, I, I feel like anybody who's seen Lynch movies is like, don't go to that house. You know, what's, what's gonna be, what kind of weirdo is going to live there? You know, I might give this a second watch sooner rather than later just because 
that that initial Lynch bias was there as I watched it. And I wonder how much different it would be to watch it without that Lynch bias, knowing that nothing bad is going to happen. No, I agree. That seems like a fair view, but uh, uh, going back to what you were saying about uh, kind of giving everybody their space and time, you you could say that, like Alvin himself, the movie is not in a hurry. It, it, it has no need to hurry up and get it done. It, it, this is the this is the antithesis of what I refer to as crackerjack pictures. And, and it never felt slow, though. I was always engaged, even you know, during the quiet moments. Well, each of the sort of little episodic bits is kind of an, a, a perfect and little miniature in its own right. Like uh, you mentioned the bit with the uh, with the hitchhiking girl by the side of the road. Damn near wept at the conclusion of that episode when he. Woke oh, up I know that bundle of sticks. Oh, with those ridiculous yeah. tied up in those ridiculous laces that she was wearing in her Nikes, uh, but. Uh, <laughs> Just, uh, just a perfect little episode, and it's a movie that's composed of just perfect little episodes from beginning, uh, from beginning to end. And uh, him in the bar, uh, having having the conversation with the other war vet. That scene, mm. that drove me to pra- to tears practically. It was it was so well done. Yeah. It was very emotional. And and that scene apparently they didn't rehearse it, and it was shot in one take. He just set up two cameras and just told them to go. Jeez! Wow, that's yeah. even better. I f- I forget the actor who played the uh, the town. I guess it was the town doctor that uh, that uh, was uh, the other uh, World War II vet there. But uh, he's one of those he's one of those that guys who uh, uh, is always good whenever he happens to show up. Uh, I f- forget where specifically I've seen him. But I know I've seen him in like dozens of things. But it was just uh, again a, a, an amazing and perfectly modulated little uh, episode. And I don't think I'm ever going to think of the word buddies uh, again the same oh. way. Just, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I was in Walmart today, and there was a gentleman who said, "Yeah, that guy'll know where everything is. He's my buddy." And I just sort of had a little flashback from the movie last night it, oh. i was like oh well oh oh, oh. <laughs> but anyway well um i think uh i think we're going to take a quick break there uh we will be right back back uh shane you were telling me some uh you uh, some interesting tidbits from uh from the book you read just a little bit like i said it's a very short chapter one was that so this movie played in competition at can and he throws a little bit of shade here so the uh the head of the jury was david cronenberg <laughs> and, lynch, and i know we're, we're cronenberg fans here but lynch says that uh lynch says that cronenberg probably thought the movie was bullshit and it wasn't his cup of tea and he just he got lynch got unlucky with just a a bad choice of a uh, head juror that year. So it didn't really get too much recognition there. Uh, the other thing was, which I thought was more interesting. So Farnsworth, of course, we, we mentioned before, he was, he was very sick with uh, cancer. Uh, so he was, he was the first and only person Lynch wanted to cast. And then Farnsworth dropped out. And then Lynch got John Hurt to agree to do the movie, which oh, I think would have been really interesting. That could, um, that could have been something. Yeah. And then Farnsworth started feeling better. So he decided he wanted to do it. And John Hurt gracefully bowed out. Uh, I think Hurt would have been great, but I, I think so much of the movie is just how frail Farnsworth actually looked because that's because he was sick. As I understood um, it, he was actually using the two canes himself uh, to move around uh, at the time that this was made. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things, another thing we talked about was like the, the big silences and giving people room. You know, Farnsworth, maybe it was his illness or just the way he, he acts, but his face is always working especially his mouth, no matter what, even if he's just sitting there. And so there's always something to look at. It always looks like he's processing something or, or trying to make a decision, even when he's just puttering along on his lawnmower, which is something I think really uh, makes the character work. And I just don't know if John Hurt would have brought that amount of pathos to it. He, he would have, but in a different way, I think. No, I, I, I think I think you're right. I, th- I think Farnsworth was the right decision, and, and I think he's perfect for this film. I can't, I can't see anybody else in the role myself. 
I, I can't really imagine John Hurt doing a very solid Midwestern accent. I mean, I, I, I could be mistaken, but uh, uh, I would have loved to, to have seen John Hurt in this or something like it, but I think Farnsworth was, absolutely, or, uh, Farnsworth was absolutely the right call on it. As well as all of the other... Uh, I know I, I said a similar line about Amarcord, but all of the other amazing collection of faces that were uh, in the cast in every role from top to bottom in this picture... Um, just, I uh, think most of them were just locals. Most of them were locals. I did love that they got Everett McGill as the John Deere dealer. Uh, <laughs> oh, the uh, Big Ed from uh, Big Ed, from exactly. Yeah, and Stilgar from Dune. Uh, because amongst other things, he does have that absolutely amazing baritonal voice. Uh, this is someone who, where he, when he tells you that the tractor is sound, the tractor is sound. Um, but. Uh, <laughs> Until the last minute, until the last hundred yards. Until the last hundred yards, which actually I think uh, uh, Jane particularly wanted to lean back into. I just have this uh, odd little uh, anecdote that uh, that uh, I I wanted to bring in regarding the guy on the big tractor passing by, who just told him to give it a minute, and then it started up again. In the back of my mind, as I was watching that, I was saying, "That guy's God, or at least a divine figure." Right there. That that that's that that's the god of John Deere owners and operators. <laughs> well, well, apparently that actually happened. He did stall out at the very end, so that wasn't just for dramatic purposes. I'm sure they they amped it up a little bit, but he, he really did make it almost all the way, and then his mower died. I I just oh. found it telling that we didn't get a close up on uh, the uh, uh, the driver of the big tractor there. Uh, I I I think that I think that was symbolic. I think that was Lynch doing some Lynch under the hood stuff. Uh, it was a blessing, if you will. A blessing, if you will. So yeah, you know, in, <laughs> in my head canon, that was either the god or the patron uh, the patron saint or patron deity of uh, of John Deere. Um, but uh you you had sort of an uh, an interesting point, uh, Jane, about sort of your sense of why it was necessary for him to do this this way, even when he got offered the shortcut relatively late in the game. Right, because we kept I kept saying, "Take the ride, take the ride," and then it occurred to me that really, in order to show penitence to his brother, to show his brother that he was serious and that he meant it. He had to come on his knees. I mean, he had to he had to do the work. He and of course it touched his brother deeply when he saw it. He's, you you came all the way like that uh, on that, and that's you know that was my point about that. I I was saying um, you know this little Sunday school lesson. I, I will we'll go back to church for here for a second. Um, my um, the minister at my church when I was in uh, school and whatever. Anyway back back when I practiced. Anyway, he, he had the story about the um, uh, camel going, you know, a, a rich man can get into heaven, as, or it's as difficult for a rich man to get into heaven as it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Well, the eye of a needle is actually a gate. Um, it's, it's a type of gate. It's very small, and they would have to unload the camel of all of its goods, and it would have to go in basically on its knees. So that's was sort of my thought is you know it was like the big gesture you know you have to he had to humble himself and and crawl over you know 370 miles on a tiny tractor for six weeks or a lawnmower excuse me not well it does look like a tiny tractor anyway <laughs> and i don't oh, know that, it, it took me a while to me. get that um honestly because i even when they were offering them the ride i was like yes please take the ride <laughs> i'm yeah, so I mean, worried I, about you <laughs> I could I could totally see if he just if a car pulls up in front of Lyle's house and then Alvin gets out then Lyle would be like get the fuck out of here yeah I mean it totally makes yeah. sense that that's something he had to do to to uh, yeah make up with, make peace with his brother and and in the greater sense you get the feeling that it was uh, sort of self penitential in its own right which is a point that I thought was really nailed home by uh, the uh, uh, reminiscences of World War Two that he had uh, the his uh, lingering guilt over that friendly fire incident. I mean, it's not just penitence in the face of his brother, it's penitence in the face of his entire life. Uh, this is his last run. He's going to do it right. He's going to do it humbly. Uh, he's not going to make it easy just to, uh, on himself just to make it easy on himself. 
And it, uh, of course, worth uh, worth uh, noting the absolute wondrousness of, you know, he calls you know for for Lyle outside that you know ramshackle shack, and who comes to the door, but Harry Dean. Yeah. Stanton. Stanton. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The repo man himself. I that see, I'm sorry, that's my favorite movie he's in. But well I'm pretty in pink. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, I think Nate and I at least are both Brett men. But uh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> e- even so it's uh, I mean, it's and it's Harry Dean Stanton and it's just perfect and he just has he just has like two or three lines. Like you come all the way on the, uh, all the way here on that thing? Yep. And just the look on Stanton's face is the tears in his eyes. Yeah. Just some of the most abjectly beautiful emoting that I have ever seen as uh, uh, anywhere. To say nothing of you know Harry Dean Stanton's career, a career that is noted for an almost bulletproof deadpan, pretty much almost all of the time. So, and I, I love that they actually uh, approach that as kind of a big reveal by you know the the first credit that pops up at the at the end is Harry Dean Stanton as Lyle. Like this is our surprise guest star, and how, yeah, exactly. And, I, I, and how, I, how often did Harry Dean Stanton ever get that kind of treatment, that kind of prestige? I didn't know who was going to play him. I didn't know who was in the movie. I I was like, oh, this might be like a big cameo. Like this is the kind of role that would usually be a big actor. And then of course, of course, it's Harry Dean Stanton. It made perfect sense. You know, it's David Lynch. Uh, you know, he loves working with him. And apparently, during that scene where he's crying, David Lynch had him like read a bunch of poems, and that's what caused wow. him to sort of break down emotionally. Yeah, what one of the all-time greats, still still dearly missed. Lending itself to the sort of unnerving quality that Lynch's films since this one have had a tendency to be the last films of a lot of actors. I mean, Twin Peaks: The Return was Harry Dean Stanton's last work. Uh, you know, a good uh, nearly two decades later. Uh, so that's a little you know, poignant and melancholy, melancholy, and possibly a little bit alarming. Either that, or it's just David Lynch is not shy about hiring old old actors well, yeah I'm, I'm pretty sure they knew that farnsworth was dying like when he took the role well so i'm not i'm not i'm not, I, I'm, fault. I'm, I'm, I'm not <laughs> suggesting causation uh, <laughs> like some poltergeist like yeah. apocryphal t- story well thank god laura dern's still out and doing tons and tons of work because wasn't wasn't inland empire his last movie or is his i be- he made one since then well he did he, he he of course wrote and directed all of the episodes of uh, of twin peaks but i don't believe he's actually done a feature since inland empire which I believe he considers Twin Peaks to be an 18-hour movie. That's the way he wrote it. That is absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. if, I, 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 I don't know if you, you guys have seen uh, have seen Twin. It is absolutely an 18-hour yeah. movie. Yes. Mo- yeah. Moreover, it's it. an 18-hour movie with an almost completely symmetrical structure, which is kind of astonishing in its own right. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that that's probably one that could uh, uh, bear sort of an extended conversation. But amongst other things, that that kind of brings up the sort of strange place that the straight story occupies in Lynch's filmography. As a whole, it's kind of amazing that this, you know, sweet, sincere, simple little movie was made between Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive, which are respectively, respectively, regally fucked up and regally fucked up. <laughs> and and at the same time, I, I I didn't even realize this, but. Having read most of the reviews, I, I, I uh, you know went back through the, uh, through my mind. I was like, yeah, you're right. Uh, I noted that the Wikipedia mentioned that this was uh, that the Straight Story was actually the first David Lynch movie that Roger Ebert ever gave a good review to. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's not a fan of Blue Velvet. He, he, he absolutely hated Blue Velvet. He hated Dune. Right before this, he gave Lost Highway a uh, I believe it was a two and a half star rating, where basically the crux of his review was, "It's well done." I just don't get it. <laughs> well, he does love Mulholland Drive, though. He I did. Guess. He did he, love he, he, great movie series. I think he did finally come around. Was the thing, but uh, Mulholland Drive, I take, I personally take almost as a spiritual uh, successor to Lost Highway in its complete dream logic uh, crypticism. But uh, Lost Highway as the uh, is actually my uh, my favorite Lynch movie, and it, it's one of the ones that I, I think is uh, a little 
underappreciated at this point. Uh, of course, I also am uh, notable in that I actually disagree with Lynch as to whether or not his protagonist killed his wife. But again, that's probably a conversation for another time. But I do remember uh, the defiance of uh, uh, some of the late uh, print ads on Lost Highway uh, act actually saying, two thumbs down, Siskel and Ebert. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. So, uh, like I said, I guess this was the point where uh, where, where uh, Ebert finally came around. And was like, okay, I, I get it. And then they kind of, you know, b uh, snuck him back into Mulholland Drive, although I think that Ebert always had a covert thing for lesbians, so that was probably <laughs> a slam dunk. Uh, but uh, it, it, it's interesting that uh, uh, some people have described uh, Lynch as uh, American cinema's foremost surrealist, which is probably true. Uh, I don't know if I necessarily entirely agree with it, but this is, and it, it still manages to be surreal, but not in the alarming way that most of the rest of Lynch's movies are surreal. Uh, and uh, again, this was coming off of an absolutely punishing run of, uh, of picture, or smack in the middle of a very punishing run of features with, I guess it was Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me before uh, Lost Highway, and then of course there was Lost Highway, then there was this, <laughs> and then he went back to his old tricks with the, the likes of Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire, which I think is probably one of those ones that is going to bear an episode in its own right later on, because I'm pretty sure most of you guys haven't seen it. Yeah, I've never seen it in Linda Empire. It's a fascinating. Well, we get the track down. It's a fascinating picture. I, I, I'm fortunate to have a physical copy, so Jane and I are covered. You guys, we might have to uh, uh, do some looking, but even so, saving that for later. We'll go on the hunt. It, it has the. It, it's interesting that it's it's an out of character picture that's nevertheless completely in 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 character. It's one of those things that. Uh, you can scarcely convince yourself that it exists and find it easy to forget that it exists unless you're directly reminded of it. And at the same time, it's one of those movies that is in its own right so completely freaking wonderful that I'm amazed that we found this much to talk about about it, aside from describing the specific individual bits that we absolutely adored. Yeah, it's a, it's a little difficult to talk about something that is that is great. It's a lot easier to talk about something that you hate. I was suggesting during the break, yes. we, we need to get uh, e either some more movies that we all really dislike uh, or uh, some movies that we have some major differences of opinion on. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to the Piranha 2 episode. Uh, yes. <laughs> Bring like, it nobody, on. Nobody can hate this movie. It's impossible. It is Unle impossible. Except, except maybe South Park's Rob Reiner's co uh, Smoke Stoppers. <laughs> eat, I got it. Yeah. Eat the cupcake, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> there is an incredible amount of smoking in this movie. <laughs> um, did and you he's even diagnosed with? Isn't he diagnosed with emphysema or something at the very, very yes. beginning? Yes. And then he goes on to smoke the entire movie. Yeah, well, pretty well. Yeah, pretty doing well. it his way. <laughs> it, 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 to all you, to listen you, to a doctor. You get the feeling that the character as much... I mean, the character, or the, the, the actual uh, Alvin Strait, I believe, uh, passed away in 1996. The journey was in 1994. And, of course, this movie came out in 1999. So it's, uh, it, it was... Uh, I, you got to figure it was very close to the real Alvin Strait's last run. You figure... Well, it's like I always said. One of these days, I swear, I swear to God or whoever is in charge, I'm going to quit smoking. It hasn't happened yet, but I swear I'm going to do it one of these days. If I then manage to make it to 80, I'm going to start smoking again, and I'm going to start drinking all the time and doing all the drugs that I can get my hands on. Uh, and uh, if, uh, if uh, Jane over here has, uh, has, uh, has wised up and, uh, and gotten rid of my ass, I'm going to start whoring around, because by that point, I have got nothing left to prove not to nobody. Yeah, but I'll be almost <laughs> 90 by then, so, you know, <laughs> I'd probably be like, you get it, honey. <laughs> Go get you some. <laughs> Um, I did want to ask something of everybody about the movie. Uh, the bump on Harry Dean Stanton's forehead, that was a prosthetic, right? I didn't even notice. I honestly, I didn't, didn't, notice. I honestly didn't notice that, actually. 
it, it looks it, like he had a large bump on his head, and I thought that was probably because of when he fell down from his stroke. And mm-hmm. I thought it was just a really nice piece of detail work. But that would have been six weeks prior. I mean, at the same time, it, it, I think you might be right if if it's there. I don't remember it being there, which means that it was subtle, which means that it worked. Yes. I, I mean, it's not <laughs> it, it's not like that bump on the guy's head from Amarcord that should have gotten you know supporting cast billing. Yeah, that was no. that was not subtle. It's like it's like a bump that's healed over, but is still kind of uh, enlarged uh, the way they are after a while. It's just it was really well done. Everybody should go back and take a look at it. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, absolutely. No, I, I, it's the subtle details like that that uh, that keep us, uh, you know, wanting to watch these things larger and in greater detail and you know, over and over again to you know, to make sure we don't miss anything. Uh, it, it's it, it's the details that bring us back. I really, uh, I also really love the rhyming structure of the uh, of the editing. Um, I love that it ends as it began on the same shot of the stars. Uh, it puts the stars from the very beginning into context, why they would do the credits over them. Um, there's the, the ball, the, like, uh, like I mentioned earlier, there's the ball rolling into frame, uh, that comes back, uh, later and puts that scene into context. I just really liked those moments and how they talk to each other. Well, Lynch has always been uh, big on sort of rhyming structures. I'll allow, I hadn't noticed it uh, quite th- that acutely at the time, but I think you're absolutely right, and that's probably one of those things that I'm going to keep ki- uh, thinking about about this. Uh, see, uh, see, you know, wh- where I can f- find, you know, this moment in the first half that matches matches this moment in the second half. Right. As I say, that that was a a distinct and overt feature built into um, Twin Peaks. I think there was a lot of that. Uh, in uh, Inland Empire and Lost Highway as well. I think I probably need to rewatch Mulholland Drive, allowing That's... that structurally that picture was very different from a lot of uh, Lynch's other movies, simply because it was built around uh, the a, a, a TV pilot that didn't get get uh, end up getting picked up. Uh, I still wonder how that would have turned out as a pilot, because I actually did not like Mulholland Drive, and I know I'm uh, I'm in the minority on that one. But uh, oh, 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 the pilot version was enthralling. I, I was interested okay. to see what would have happened next. Yeah. Oh, there is a. It's available. I've never. Well, it 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 can be found. I'll put it that way. Uh, (laughs) it exists thank you dragon con in 2006 Uh, (laughs) (laughs) no no, but uh but uh it's uh i mean it was very interesting i I very much wanted to see uh, what came next but uh definitely a lot of the weirder stuff was not an aspect of uh of the pilot simply because i mean it was done for i guess they were going to try to sell it to abc there was only so much you could get away with at that point uh, definitely did not have the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the furious masturbation scene or the lesbian love scenes or, or, uh, or, or, uh, some of the really, really unnerving, uh, imagery had a bit more, had a bit more for Robert Forster to do, which was kind of nice. Anyway, uh, yeah, that makes sense. This character kind of just disappeared. Like he just shows up, says some kind of stock cop lines and then that's it for him. Yeah. He, he had more to do in the pilot. I think he would have been a semi-regular in the series, but, uh. I, I, it's hard to look at any Lynch movie in the context of anything other than un, other Lynch movies. I mean, going back to what you were suggesting about uh, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, us, uh, you know, cult film buffs tend to think of of uh, Lynch and Cronenberg in kind of the same breath, so to speak, or to mix metaphors a little bit. Uh, it, that's that that anecdote that Cronenberg maybe kind of didn't dig it is sort of interesting because it never occurred to me that you know they might not have a lot of care for each other's work, particularly. Uh, right. that, I mean, it was just one sentence in, in, in this paragraph, but. Yeah, who knows? I, 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 yeah, I would have always, I would have always thought of them too as sort of. I mean, I don't know if they know each other, but as sort of admiring each other's work. But who knows? Yeah, they kind. Of, well, I mean, they kind of get group. Uh, frankly, they get grouped together by populist critics uh, a lot, uh, and to a lesser extent by uh, by genre critics. Uh, as I say, thought thought of in the same breath. Personally, I never thought that their work particularly resembled each other. So, from a standpoint of subcultural ghettoization it's almost a marriage of convenience to mix a whole bunch of other metaphors <laughs> the 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 similarity is that they both make weird movies and they're both ha- they both have independent spirits that's yeah. about about it their movies are not very similar 
Yeah, but uh, I, I, I recall Cronenberg's uh, uh, 1999 movie was Existence, which even now is one of his weirdest pictures. So, uh, I love that movie. Uh, that uh, that movie is profoundly underrated, and uh, if anybody here hasn't uh, seen that, that's probably one that we need to talk about some other time. But uh, yeah, I would I would definitely watch put that on the pile. But I mean, I'd well, love to watch that again. But I mean, when you think about Cronenberg in general, you have to figure probably his nicest movie is a dangerous method. You know, the one where uh, Carl Jung and, Sieg and Sigmund Freud take turns spanking uh, Kira Knightley. Uh, <laughs> seriously. Well, I, I would put Cosmopolis up there. Cosmopolis? Is, well, okay, Cosmopolis is probably comparable at the same time. Yeah, Co I haven't seen A Dangerous Method. But... Well, I mean, A Dangerous Method is almost a costume drama, aside from being kind of kinky as hell under the hood. In a way that grows organically out of the characters, but uh, and at the same time, Cos Cosmopolis is just an outright comedy, albeit a very, very dark one. Although realistically, you can say that a about a lot of Cronenberg movies. But anyways, we're, 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 we've kind of diverged a little bit here. But the point is, it's hard to talk about the straight story except by talking about how much we adore the movie as a whole, or this particular bit, or this particular bit, or the other yeah. particular bit. It's a wonderful film. It's a wonderful film. Really That's is. possibly the lead that we've that we've been uh, you know burying here is just overall from beginning to end it never feels slow. It never feels rushed. Uh, it never feels like it wastes a second. Uh, you, you never Look, get, I, you never okay. get antsy watching the movie. I I told my mom to watch it. I think that that right there is you know as as good of uh, high praise as, as you can get if we're it's the david lynch movie you can recommend to 80 year olds you got it <laughs> oh i'd be afraid i would be afraid they would say what you think i'm old or something <laughs> <laughs> my mom fully admits that she's done very well getting to 85 so 86 next month so <laughs> we, we are not shy about our age around here <laughs> <laughs> Well, I am, but that's because I, I you, because you know, my my missus looks like she's younger than I am. Oh. <laughs> was that too cute? That was probably too cute. Uh, <laughs> it can be edited it's, out. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. We're turning this the wheels. Is... It's a hard movie to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> this is a very very low listenership podcast, so it's just fine. <laughs> it's all fine. <laughs> How are you? I am good. How are you, Nate? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. <laughs> it's a little bit punch drunk. Do does anybody want to share final thoughts on uh, the straight story? Check it out. It's great. <laughs> hey, mom, if you're listening, go watch it. Just like I told you last night. There you go. In this episode, well, in this episode, we have uttered about seven more curse words than there are in this movie. How's that? It, yeah, it that is, is a, it is technically an R-rated podcast about a G-rated movie. That's that's what we've done here. That's wonderful. <laughs> and on that note, uh, <laughs> join us next week as we discuss two of M. Night Shyamalan's most reviled movies: Lady in the Water, the story of a mythological creature and the people who care for her, followed by The Last Airbender, the film based on the animated series Avatar: The Last Airbender. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at What's on the Pile or visit us on what's at whatsonthepile.com. Thanks for hanging out. <laughs>